Greetings, friends, and welcome to yet another episode of the Rocky River United Methodist Church podcast. I'm here with uh, Stephen Young, our Director of Youth Ministries. My name is Paul Bennett. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Welcome uh, each and every one of you. Welcome anybody who's uh, new with us today. And uh, we, we hope and pray the word is uh, spreading and uh, more and more folks are, are tuning in to hear uh, Stephen and I um, wax eloquently about these uh, these very um, intriguing topics that, that we're uh, grasping onto, or at least attempting attempting to, to do that. Uh, and and with that being said, we're, we're moving on within our uh, topic, within our current series uh, about digging into God's Word, digging into the Bible, and, and helping uh, us as individuals have a, a better strategy or, or understanding of how best to break down uh, our uh, Bible passages that we read and what kind of steps uh, that we can go through in, in doing so, how we can understand God's Word better. Um, so here at, here at Rocky River UMC, we offer... Uh, these Bible studies called Disciple Bible Studies, and, and they are essentially our high-commitment, uh, high-reward study option because there's a, a lot uh, that goes into them. And those who sign up for Disciple One, the first uh, study in the, the series, uh, really cover the whole Bible, uh, cover to cover, including passages from every book of the Bible, and uh, some of the books, uh, they cover the, the book in its entirety. And the greatest takeaway, besides the incredible relationships that I've seen people form uh, in this process is uh, the ability uh, that people obtain to see the whole of Scripture as, as one united story. Um, and, and I've just uh, loved watching people go through that experience and, and come away with that on the other side. Because uh, what we read in Genesis, it sets the table for you know what we read in Isaiah. And then when we go into the New Testament, we're reading the Gospels. They point back to something we learned in Deuteronomy, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, every book of the Bible, though it's written, uh, though these books are written across a large time period and by many authors, they are intended to be small parts of a larger and cohesive whole. So you can learn a lot by reading chunks of, of Scripture here and there tuning into the occasional sermon, picking up on some nuggets, uh, but you will have your life flipped uh, upside down. I, I truly believe when you start connecting all the clues together, all the stories together, all the messages, the concepts together to solve the greater mystery of God's amazing plan for, for humanity. So uh, part of Bible study, is, as uh, Stephen and I are going to dub it today, is is bridging contexts. It's connecting each passage to its its place in the bigger picture of God's message for humanity. You simply cannot get out of Scripture what God intends for us to uh, without connecting um, passages as you move along and being able to see them as small parts of a, a larger whole. And we are going to uh, throw at you uh, several examples of how to go about this and, and connect these passages today. Stephen's going to lead us off with, uh, as always, a doozy. What do you got for us, Stephen? Yes, <clears throat> I'm really looking forward to uh, this podcast. I think we have some really great, interesting um, topics to talk about when it comes to bridging context and looking at Scripture from a big-picture perspective. Um, and the first topic I'm going to be speaking about is covenant. Um, and just kind of a heads up um, for all the for what I'm going to speak about, and I've done a lot of research. I know Paul's done a lot of research, and if anyone's interested in the sources um, I've used or Paul has used, that um, be happy to send those to you. Um, again, I really recommend Bible Project, and I also got some inf information from 
um, gotquestions.org, which is a great site to go to for answers to uh, Christian questions. Christian questions. <laughs> that was a tongue Ooh, twister. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So we're starting off with covenant. So start uh, start off by reading the passage, uh, Matthew chapter twenty two, verse twenty, and it says, "In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you.'" So the the context is, is Jesus at the Last Supper, and they're passing the cup around. So Jesus says this word that this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out to you. What does Jesus mean by that um, phrase, new covenant? What does that mean? So um, this word and concept, first we're going to focus on on a covenant. The concept of covenant is significant in the scriptures. Um, in fact, the word testament is really another word for covenant. So the Bible is, comp- is comprised of two parts, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or Old Testament and New Testament. Covenant was well was a well-known concept in ancient times, and covenants could be made between two equal parties or between a king and a subject. The king would promise certain uh, protections, and the subject would promise loyalty to the king. Uh, a covenant might be conditional or unconditional. Jesus in this passage is speaking of a new covenant that is being made through his blood or through his death. To understand this new covenant, we must understand the old covenant. There are actually many covenants throughout Scripture. Several of the main ones were a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with David, and a covenant with Noah. And and also, you could also say a covenant with Adam and Eve in the beginning, um, which in a way anchors all the other covenants. Um, And people describe that covenant, Adam and Eve, as a covenant of grace. Um... But the new covenant that Christ speaks of is being contrasted with the covenant that God made with made to Moses and the people in Israel at Mount Sinai after he rescued them from Egypt. Um, a good way to look at this covenant is there uh, is a symbol of marriage. Like in marriage, two people are making a covenant commitment to each other. So if you want a, a way of understanding this covenant at Mount Sinai, it's almost like a, a marriage covenant where God is committing himself to the people and the people are committing themselves to God. In this covenant, the people are giving are given the Ten Commandments, along with some other commandments, quite a few, um, but also given a sacrificial system. Um, the Ten Commandments are how to live, and the sacrificial system is how to live in God's holy presence uh, while being sinners. Uh, because God knew that the people would not be able to keep the commandments, and so the sacrificial, sacrificial system was a way of symbolizing the forgiveness to the people. Um, the commands were written on stone tablets, and the sacrificial system was an animal was um, based on animal sacrifices. Neither the stone tablets nor the sacrificial system could deal with the hearts and the minds of the people. Paul puts the new covenant as written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Um, so the old covenant is a system, again, is the Ten Commandments and, and a sacrificial system of this covenant of commitment that God has made to the people um, and the people have made to God. Um, but also with even within the sacrificial system, so we have a weakness and 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 the in the Ten Commandments in that they weren't written on the heart, but they were written on stone. Um, and this new covenant is a covenant that's going to be written on the hearts of people. And then looking at the sacrificial system, there's 
uh, a problem there as well in the Old Covenant that day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He performs the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Um, this is from Hebrews chapter 10. So there's, even within the sacrificial system, it wasn't completely taken away sin. In this new covenant, Christ is a sacrifice that is foreshadowed and is now fulfilled. And the stone tablets of the old covenant are now written on the hearts of the people. So in essence, the new covenant is the fulfilling in many ways of the old covenant. The new covenant is the spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit that is being dwelt, sent out to dwell in people. This context comes full circle when Jeremiah, um, also quoted in Hebrews, um, speaks about the new covenant. It says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. So even in Jeremiah, there's this hint of a new covenant that is coming. So when Jesus says, This blood is of the new covenant, this is what he's speaking about. A covenant in which the sacrificial system um, did not fulfill in the Old Testament, but in the New Covenant, um, it will fulfill because Christ is that sacrifice. And then the laws that were sent or the laws that were given by God in Mount Sinai are no longer just written on stone, but now written on the human heart or written on the one who commits their life to Jesus Christ. Um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that law now is, is written on our hearts. And all of that comes to um, its greatest fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ. Um, but this is the new covenant that Jesus is speaking of when he says, my blood is the beginning of a new covenant. So we're going to stay with um, essentially the same historical context in looking back to the, the first five books of the Bible. It, it's interesting. I, I know uh, the latter example that I'm going to offer uh, pulls from that too. Those first five books, often referred to as the Pentateuch, um, create such a, a strong foundation for the rest of Scripture. And so much of Scripture points back to some of the events that take place in, in that narrative story of uh, God's chosen people uh, being in, in slavery in Egypt and then uh, rescued by, by Moses through God and and. Uh, wandering in the wilderness and establishing themselves in, in the promised land. So much of uh, what we understand from later in the Old Testament and the Gospels and, and uh, Paul and his epistles pull from uh, this story, this epic story, um, and uh, just uh, really contributes to our larger process of bridging context. We're, we're so often looking back to parts of this story. And, and uh, Stephen was covering covenant. Uh, I'm going to be looking specifically at a, a passage from the book of Numbers, um, that is uh, somewhat overlapping in uh, topic, but uh, goes in a completely different direction ultimately. And I'll, I'll read it for you first. This is Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. And uh, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
the Lord said to Moses, Make a, a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. All right, so, uh, you know, the, the, the first question you might throw out there is, are you sure that was in the Bible? Are you sure you weren't reading some other bizarre uh, book, uh, Paul? And, and the answer is yes, it's actually in the Bible. God it did actually sick a bunch of snakes on his people uh, because they were whining too much, uh, more or less, anyhow. Uh, but what is actually going on here? You see, if all you have is this passage in Numbers, uh, I suppose you could try to make some sense out of this. Uh, you know, maybe you think back to the story of, of the Garden of Eden and Eve being tempted by the serpent in the garden. And so you connect, okay, we're talking serpent snakes again. So we know snakes probably symbolize sin and, and evil because that's what they represented in in uh, Genesis. So um, uh, so maybe you can apply that to this story, but we're already, uh, without realizing it, bridging context. We're looking back to Genesis to be able to understand numbers. But uh, if snakes represent the people's sin, if we allow ourselves to do that, we might imagine that God is trying to help his people understand the importance here in Numbers of, of trusting him, not whining uh, so much and, and complaining all the time. And he is sending snakes down to show them that their sin, their dishonoring God, can be deadly. Uh, but we're still left with a lot of questions. Why are we uh, hanging a snake on a pole and staring at it? There's a, a thinker. Um, that's where you absolutely have to have, and, and we're going to look forward to this, John chapter 3, to begin to make sense of, of this passage here in Numbers. So first we look back to Genesis, now we look forward to John. And here is a, a passage from John 3, and you'll be familiar with at least part of this. I'll, I'll read it for you in its entirety. It says, uh, this is, these are the words of Jesus. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you probably recognized at least uh, one of those four verses. And, and clearly what we're seeing here is that an Old Testament uh, event is being used to set up a, a significant event in the New Testament. To me, you know, we can just stop right here and, and uh, dwell on the fact that this is a really important concept. We need to read the Old Testament when we do so with the understanding that the things happening have meaning for the people experiencing them at the time, but they also have meaning, perhaps even greater meaning, for people who are going to live many years later, including uh, you and I today. So to the Israelites in Numbers, staring at a snake on a pole probably seemed rather random, right? Why is God doing this? Uh, they did what they had to do because God said so, but they probably didn't fully understand it. But the event takes on a whole new meaning to Jesus' audience in this John 3 story. And of course, uh, to you and I, everyone who reads John afterwards. Moses didn't just put a snake on a pole because they were fresh out of flags or whatever else it is you hang on poles. Uh, he put a snake on a pole to foreshadow Jesus one day ascending the cross. 
all the way back in Numbers, uh, he is he's foreshadowing this. Just like the Israelites had to look upon their sins in the form of that bronze snake and be made well by doing so in the book of Numbers, so we all have to look upon Jesus bearing our sins upon the cross to be made well today. If you read just Numbers or you read just John, you, you can pick up on the basics of what's going on, but read them together and connect them, and, and you have a message with much greater depth and significance. All of a sudden, what the Israelites are enduring in the wilderness connects directly uh, with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And, and if we don't know this when we're reading Numbers, we don't get to make that incredible connection. And for us watching Jesus die on the cross years later in the Gospels, the whole thing has much greater impact having connected it to what we already know about the story from Numbers and the sin of the Israelites out in the wilderness. And so now we can read any Old Testament story and know that, that it has direct implications for how we understand our faith today in a New Testament world. So uh, there are actually other passages and chunks of Scripture all throughout uh, Scripture that we could pull in to, to uh, just further amplify the, the message and, and uh, the depth of, of this passage and this concept of, of uh, the wages of our sin and um, Jesus's role in, in redeeming us from that. There's so many other things we could pull in, but just these, these uh, numbers and, and John 3 connection and pointing back to Genesis already have taken the, the story, that concept, and, and brought it to life in ways we never could have uh, experienced if we didn't bring those passages together as one. Uh, so the examples uh, will continue, and uh, Stephen, take us into the next. Yeah, <clears throat> so the next one we're going to talk about when it comes to bridging context is and seeing how all the scripture is connected as one big story is we're going to be looking at um, sacrifices. Um, and this is going to kind of um, have some overlap with, with what I just talked about. Um, so when it comes to sacrifices, one, <laughs> one of the questions that so many of us may have, and even when I was learning the faith and growing, it's just, it raises the questions when it comes to sacrifices, is is God bloodthirsty? Um is God, we do, do we worship a bloodthirsty God? And the answer to that is no. Um, God is, is in not, he's not in need of sacrifice, okay? Um, our modern notions of animal sacrifice come from all sorts of places, but most of which are not biblical at all. Um, so most of our, de our depictions of sacrifice kind of go like this. The gods are angry with me and are going to kill me. But maybe if I kill this animal and make sure the gods get their pound of flesh, they'll be appeased and happy. And just maybe they won't kill me or send a plague on my family. Sure, it's barbaric, but so are the gods. Um, so this kind of depiction of sacrifice, I think, is what we have when we think of sacrifice. Um, this is the main storyline. That is something that is found more in the Iliad or the Odyssey or some other ancient Mesopotamian works. Um, so it comes maybe from Iliad and Odyssey, or more Greek and Roman and, and ancient Mesopotamian works as well. Um, so we're going to get a proper biblical context. I'm going to be reading from Psalm chapter 50, verses 7 and 13. And as Psalm chapter 50, it says, listen, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel, for I am God, your God. Um, I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. 
Um, verse 9 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thanks offerings to the God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and will honor, and you will honor me. So what's interesting that we get in that passage right off the bat, God reveals that he knows all the creatures and all the creatures are his. Um, he doesn't need animals from people. He isn't hungry, nor is he violently seeking the death of animals or anyone, nor is he bloodthirsty. And he specifically points that out. He's like, do I drink the blood of goats? Um, God is completely self-sufficient and, and in need of nothing. Um, so the sacrifices, we don't need to see the sacrifices in this ancient portrayal as if the gods need to get this bloodthirsty um, they have this thirst for blood or their pound for flesh and they have to get this sacrifice. This, that's not what's going on when we look at the sacrificial system. Um, so then the question is, why have sacrifice at all? Um, and the reason we have sacrifice is to symbolize many things. Um, and the main things, sacrifice symbolizes the consequence of sin, um, the need to purify, and the need to show our the need to show our need for a savior. So first, the consequence of sin. So any sin at all leads to death, not just physical death, but a spiritual death, because sin is a turn is is one's turning away from life, and God is life. Sin is a walking is walking in rebellion in the other direction to life, and ultimately, if you walk away from life, you're it's leading towards death. Um, because the one who turns away from the source of life, which is God, you're ultimately leading towards death. Sin isn't only rebellion against God, but it's also the self-proclamation. I know I'm saying that wrong. So, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> um, that that knowing right from wrong. So, sin is saying that I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And it's I want to do what I want to do. And, and it's really saying I want to be a God um, to myself. Uh, so this selfishness and pride destroys not only the person, but it destroys the community as well. So sin is more than what we do or what you don't do. Sin is a condition that we are sinners and we have all turned our backs on God. And, that, and that's our natural disposition when it comes to the human being, that we all naturally turn our backs on God. Um, so thus the animal sacrifices is symbolizing um, the life of sin and the consequence of that is death. And, and, and it's symbolizing that in a very graphic way. Uh, as you see, the animal is killed. So even in Leviticus, it describes that the person places their hand on the animal when the animal um, saying that my sins pass to this animal and this animal is dying as as a result of my sins. Um, so the judgment and natural consequence for sin is death. Um, and if God, and, and I know in our society, we always have a hard time with the word judgment. Um, but if we lived, but, but we also have in our culture a, a good sense of a judicial system. 
um, and we have a good sense of justice. So in our culture, we have a hard sense of judgment, but we also know what a justice system is, and we all want a fair and just justice system that's part of the core of the American political system. So, and and God is a just God. He describes himself even in, in Psalms 50 as being a just God. So a just God would punish sin and would punish injustice. That's, that's what a just God would do. And it's also the loving thing to do is to punish what punish sin. Um, and again, the problem is, is that we are all sinners, and so we are all justly punished by God. But the symbolism here is that the animal is taking that punishment, and the animal is taking the consequence, just the natural consequence of sin, which is a leading a life that is turning away from God. The second reason for sacrificial system is to purify. So sin in a way, sin pollutes the land, it pollutes the people, it pollutes, ultimately pollutes God's good world. Um, you can almost see sin as vandalism against God's good world. So in Leviticus um, chapter 17, verse 11, it says the life of the animal is in the blood. So the blood symbolizes um, both the covering and the washing away of sin. So to purify the community in the land, this is why if you ever read um, in the Old Testament or, or passages in the New, it talks about the sprinkling of blood, that the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar or sprinkle blood on the curtain. Um, they're sprinkling that blood. It's symbolizing that there is a new life. Like you're sprinkling the blood, which is life, to cover over and to erase death, which is sin. So that's the symbolism there. The blood is a symbolism of as life is being sprinkled and cleansing the land of death. Again, this isn't because God was bloodthirsty, but that God was sending a message, and that message is is the message of purification. Because God is a holy God, and God is a spotless God. God is God. How can a holy God dwell with sinners? The symbolism shows that through the blood of the creatures, through the blood of the animals, is a purifying of the people, a purifying of the community, um, so that God can dwell in the midst of his people. And this purifying is also like, is symbolizing that the people are made holy because of the blood that purifies them. And the third thing, it reveals our need for a Savior. And, and I, hopefully all of this is kind of bridging a context. Obviously, we're going to get to Christ. So the third, our need for a Savior. Each animal that um, was killed was innocent, un, an unblemished, innocent male animal. Either they were sheep, they were bulls, they were goat, or even a bird. Um, and birds were used for those who couldn't afford um, the larger animals. Um, again, so these animals were innocent. They're unblemished male animals. But there's a problem in the sacrificial system, and I just said this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. And then Hebrews 10, again, it says, uh, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Thus, the sacrifices um, was a system that symbolized the people's need for a final and complete, once and for all, sacrifice. Again, so the sacrificial system was a symbol or foreshadowing the people's need, our need for a final and complete, once and for all, sacrifice. Thus enters Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10 says, uh, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
But when this priest, Jesus, when the priest, Jesus, offered all for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Um, so again, Christ comes not to appease a very angry, bloodthirsty God, but Christ comes for our sake so that we can be saved for our sins and purified as well from our sins. And, and you see that the sacrificial system um, really clearly in 1 John chapter 4, it says, um, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to, we also ought to love one another. So sacrifice is ultimately a symbol of God's love, seen most clearly in the sacrificial death of Jesus. Wow. Well, uh, thank you, Stephen. You pretty much just cleared up the entire Bible for me. Uh, there's, there's really no nook and cranny in, in Scripture that is not touched somehow by the, the underlying theme of sacrifice and uh, all of Scripture uh, until the Gospels is, is kind of laying the foundation for what sacrifice is all about and the, and the necessity of it. And then it's all building towards, uh, as you just described, that one great sacrifice that uh, would compensate for all of our sins for all time. And uh, some powerful imagery and, and great connecting uh, going on there. And uh, I know you all are probably spent and, and uh, brain power has been exhausted and mine has too. Uh, just f following that incredible journey we were just on. But let me take us down one more uh, as we break down one final passage in our final few minutes here. Um, we remember the Israelites wandering in the desert, right, in the wilderness and, and whining uh, to God about uh, lack of food and water and the food they had wasn't uh, tasty enough and God was flinging snakes at them from above. Well, uh, we're back in the wilderness with them. This time we're going to rewind a bit to earlier in their wanderings. And uh, this passage is, is from Exodus 16. And since it basically comprises the entirety of Exodus 16, I'm not going to read it for you, but I'm going to summarize it uh, as succinctly as I can. Um, many of you will know just as context uh, the story of the Israelites being rescued from slavery in Egypt. We already mentioned that once. They head out into the wilderness. Didn't take long for their excitement of being free and of uh, witnessing all of God's miracles and, and rescuing them. All of that, uh, the, the, the allure of all of that wore off. The Israelites began complaining and begging Moses, just take us back to Egypt where at least the food is decent, uh, even if we, we don't have our freedom. And God hears their complaints from above, and he promises uh, here in Exodus 16, uh, this is still relatively early in their, their wanderings, he promises to begin raining down food from heaven every day for the people. <clears throat> so in the evening, he tells them their camp would be covered with quail uh, that have essentially fallen from the sky that they could cook and eat. And then every morning, God would provide, he tells them, these, these small flakes uh, almost like bread, almost like uh, cereal, that were called manna. And uh, they would appear on the desert floor every morning when the dew uh, that was there prior to them began to dry up. The, the manna would appear, these small white flakes. And the people could go out every day and they could gather the manna 
And they could gather one day, uh, one day's worth of manna, and only one day's worth of manna. They were not to go out on Monday and gather enough manna for the whole week, uh, but they were to go out every single day and collect enough just for that day. Only the day before the Sabbath uh, would they be able to gather two days' worth of manna so that they wouldn't need to work uh, at all on the Sabbath to, to gather more to eat. Now, once again, if all you have is this Exodus passage, uh, you, you can try to make some sense out of this. The people are hungry. They're whining about it. God decides to feed them. He cares about his people, uh, so he's taking care of them. Maybe it's that simple. But later, when the people are whining, in our numbers passage from earlier, God sent snakes, right? Not cereal. Uh, so we might ask, why is that? Why is God reacting differently here uh, earlier in their journey? And why does God send this bread substance and not some other kind of food? Why are these, uh, these little chunks of bread? Why does it appear with the dew first thing in the morning? And why are the Israelites supposed to collect it every day? Why does it go bad if you, if you try to save it for more than one day? So none of these questions uh, are answered in the Exodus account. All of them arise out of the Exodus account, but the Exodus account does nothing to answer really any of these questions. So once again, we've got to fast forward um, to the New Testament and uh, here to John chapter 6. And let's see what we can learn by bridging contexts. So in John 6, Jesus has just recently completed the feeding of the 5,000, which you, you may be familiar with that story. The day prior, Jesus had miraculously fed a huge crowd of people with only a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And now that the next day has come, the same crowd of people are still trying to, to chase Jesus around so they can hear him and uh, hear his teachings. They've followed him to the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching them. Um, and here is John chapter 6, verses 25 uh, through 35. This is uh, Jesus' encounter with this crowd that he's just fed the day before um, in John 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you, you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, he told them, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what, what must we, we do uh, to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, also always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All right, so uh, there's a lot going on here, especially when we uh, add to that what we read uh, and understood from Exodus 16. But here's the gist. This huge crowd of people had followed Jesus, hoping probably for another miracle, maybe another free handout of uh, free lunch that day, like they had gotten the day before. And Jesus challenges them, basically saying, don't just follow me because you're hoping for free handouts for food that spoils. 
come follow me to receive the food that endures to eternal life. All right, so suddenly we're starting to uh, connect some dots here. We, we have two types of food. This food that spoils, which makes me think of the, the manna in the wilderness that would spoil after a single day. And, and this is the food Jesus said that doesn't matter. We need the food, he says, that feeds us for eternity. The food that Jesus says the Son of Man or Jesus himself would give them. So the crowds are starting to piece things together here, too. They remember back to the Exodus story, and, and they asked Jesus, are you going to give us food just like God gave the Israelites food in the wilderness? Uh, how about that? These crowds are even uh, starting to piece things together, uh, but they're still rather confused um, because Jesus has to correct them, tells them the food that God is sending now isn't flakes of bread. We're not talking physical food anymore, he tells them. We're talking me. We're talking Jesus. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All right, so let's uh, wrap up connecting these dots. Once again, an Old Testament event used to set up an important concept in the New uh, Testament or the New Covenant, something I learned from Stephen today. Uh, what were the manna flakes all about? What were they all about? God was trying to accustom his people way back in Exodus to the habit of seeking him out for nourishment every day. Except not only physical nourishment, but also spiritual nourishment. Just like the Israelites woke up every morning, they saw the dew uh, produce flakes of bread. Now we wake up every morning, we should look for our dew, our living water, another reference to Jesus, and our flakes of bread, which is the bread of life, our spiritual nourishment in Jesus Christ. So we need to seek sustenance from relationship with the Lord every day, every morning. And don't try to do it once a week and make it last for the next seven days because that, that one dose will spoil. It will not last. Collect your manna, your spiritual nourishment, every day when you seek the Lord. Drink of his living water. And truly the manna in the wilderness of Exodus 16 sets up the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, which also sets up Jesus' declaration that he's the bread of life later in the chapter. The meaning behind any of these passages, guys, is not clear it's not as rich it's not as impactful without us connecting them to one another understanding them as multiple parts of a single story friends scripture is one story one one epic you know sweeping event and, and story and and uh concept of god's love for his people his pursuit of his people our uh messing up over and over and over again it is one story we can't read scripture in small chunks and never get around to putting them together or we are depriving ourselves of uh, the full breadth of god's incredible wisdom and uh, message of love and grace for us uh, so i can't uh, encourage you more find a way whether it's by a uh, um, jumping on board with one of these uh, studies that, that engages all of Scripture somehow, some way, or, or take on a personal reading plan for yourself to begin to, to break it down yourself. Um, come uh, meet with one of the, the leadership folks here at the church. We'll help you figure out a, a way to do this. Uh, but your eyes will be opened when you, you change your, your Bible reading habits and not just be uh, picking pieces and parts here and there and trying to make sense of them as, as little nuggets of wisdom and understanding, but putting the whole thing together and being able to see uh, the, the New Testament through the lens of the Old, the Old through the lens of the New, and how we can connect uh, passages and, and books all over the Bible and, and really come to a greater understanding of all that Jesus has in store for us. 
Um, so that's a wrap for today. We got uh, at least a, a couple more weeks of uh, not just uh, breaking down scripture, but having some fun digging deeply into a, a couple of uh, passages, maybe even breaking down uh, an entire book. We'll pick a shorter book of, of scripture and, and have some fun with that. Uh, so that is what's on tap. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll be twisting and turning through the rest of the year doing some other stuff. But uh, we, we, uh, we love you guys. We uh, wish that we had more opportunities to, to be with you in person, to, to worship with you, to study with you, to, to be in fellowship together. Uh, please take advantage of those that are available as you're comfortable. Stay connected with us uh, through, through email, uh, through uh, keeping up with the, the programs and events that are still happening. Um, be well. Take care of your families. And uh, do not lose your thirst. Uh, for more of God and, and more of his uh, plan for you and experience a relationship with him, even in the midst of these uh, difficult times. Uh, so we look forward to, to coming back to you next week. And until then, be well and uh, have a great week. <laughs>